We're going to be in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. If you have a Bible, feel free to take uh, take it out. Uh, You can follow as well on the screen. We are in week number 10. Next week is going to actually be our final chapter in uh, in our final uh, verse and final sermon in this series. And then we're going to move on to another theme. But our text today is phenomenal. It's one of those texts where if I just read it, I could just say, amen, let's go home. I'm not going to do that, Uh, but it's just one of those texts that are so powerful that I could just read it and our souls will be filled. And so let me read it. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things. Who will bring any charge against those who God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Amen. Lord, breathe on us now through the power of your Holy Spirit. May these truths that find themselves on the pages of our Bibles or on the screen of our phones or computer, may they find deep resonance in our souls and in our hearts this day. We pray these things in Christ's name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. One of the greatest obstacles to a life that's marked by love, a life that's marked by peace, a life that's marked by joy, a life that's marked by hope, is the tendency we have to limit God's grace in our lives. When I think about God's grace and when I think about our relationship to God, I often think about this particular quote by a very well-known Christian author of the 20th century named A.W. Tozer. Tozer wrote in one of his books a profound statement that I have chewed on for many, many years. And this is what he said. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And the question that we need to wrestle with on this Sunday morning is what comes to your mind when you think about God? Is the God that's in your mind one who loves you when you pray but is against you when you don't? Is the God who comes to your mind one who cares for you on Sundays when you're in worship but's not thinking about you on Thursdays when you're doing something else? Is the God that's in your mind one who pours out forgiveness relentlessly to you or one who holds back? Do you truly believe that God is for you? It's often the case that we carry this lurking suspicion in our souls about the love of God. This lurking lurking suspicion in our souls about whether God is for us or whether God is against us. And we often believe deep down in our souls that God is either against us, that God is apart from us, or God is apathetic towards us. Either God is ready to pounce on us 
or God is too distant to actually do something in our lives, or God could care less about us. That's what often what comes into our minds when we think about God. He's either against us, apart from us, or apathetic towards us. And so the image again is what comes to your mind when you think about God. And what we're seeing in this chapter, in Romans chapter 8, is that Paul is reminding us of God's commitment towards us in Christ Jesus. And this is what we're going to further explore in the next few chapters. And when Paul continues in verse 31, he continues his line of thinking with a particular question. And the question that he asks is, what shall we say to all of this? In light of everything that I've said up to this point, what shall we say to all of this? And it's a good question because Paul is about to summarize everything that we've been hearing up to this point. He's going to summarize what some scholars say, chapters 5 through chapters 8 in the book of Romans. He's going to summarize what other scholars believe is actually chapters 1 through chapters 8 in the book of Romans. But he's going to summarize it in 10 words. In chapters 5 through chapters 8, Paul has written about 2,500 words. In chapters 1 through chapters 8, Paul has written about 5,000 words. But what Paul is going to do for all of us this day is summarize everything he said in just 10 words. What shall we say to all of this? In light of everything I've said, what shall we say? The question then is, what has Paul said? Now, I'm going to review for you what Paul has said, and what I'm going to do right now is overwhelm you with grace. Oh, you ready for it? I'm going to overwhelm you with truth. I'm going to overwhelm you with the love of God to show you what Paul has been saying up until this point. And I'm just going to start at chapter 5 because we'd be here for three hours. Chapters 5 through chapter 8. What has Paul said? This is what he said, that we are justified by faith, that Christ died for the ungodly. That we've been reconciled to God through Christ's death. That we are buried and raised with Christ. That sin is no longer your master. That you have eternal life in Christ Jesus. We have deliverance from the law and sin in Christ. But there's more. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Those in Christ live in the realm of the Spirit. You've been adopted into the family of God. We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. There's a glory that's going to be revealed in us. We have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, but there's more. The Spirit intercedes for us. God is working for the good in our lives. We have been predestined to be conformed to Jesus. You have been called. You have been justified. And you will be glorified. This is what Paul has said so far. Ah, it feels good. And if you get that deep in your soul, that'll make you do a backflip when you run out of this church. Paul has said all of these things. What shall we say to these things? What things? All of those things right there. And what Paul says is, I'm going to tell you what we shall say to these things, and I'm going to summarize it in 10 words. If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen. 
10 of the most beautiful words in the entire Bible right here, summarizing the entire book of Romans. If God is for us, who can be against us? So much theology packed in those 10 words. So much truth distilled in those 10 words. So much promise summarized in those 10 words. If God is for us, who can be against us? I just love how Paul summarizes it in a beautiful way. It reminds me of another person who summarized the truth of God in another way, a guy by the name of Karl Barth. Karl Barth is one of my favorite theologians. He's highly regarded as the most important theologian of the 20th century. And in his own writings, he's uh, wrote, wrote a whole lot of things about God, a whole lot of theology. And over the course of his writings, in one book called Church Dogmatics, in particular, volumes upon volumes of book, he wrote six million words. He had a lot of time on his hand. No Facebook back then. Uh, he had a lot of time. Six million words. And one day he was being interviewed before some seminary students. And they said, Dr. Bart." If you could summarize all of the pages of theology and all of the millions of words that you have written, how would you summarize your theology in one sentence? And this theologian said, it's actually quite easy for me to do that. In light of all the millions of words that I have written, if I can summarize it in one sentence, this is what I'd say. The song that my mother taught me years ago comes to mind. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Millions of words summarized in that song. This is what Paul is doing in Romans chapter 8, taking mountains upon mountains of theology and saying, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, when Paul says that, Basically, no one can be against us. He's not saying that no one will be against us. Amen, somebody. Because the truth is that the world that we live in, there are plenty of forces that come against us. There are angry, resentful people who sometimes come against us. The evil one comes against us. Powers and principalities come against us. Sometimes our families come against us. Sometimes we come against ourselves. And so when Paul says in those 10 words of God before us, who can be against us, he's not saying that we will not have adversaries. But he's saying that those opposing forces are no match for God's presence and God's love in our lives. And Paul makes it even more plain in verse 32. How do we know that God is for us? How do we know this? Some of us are probably asking that question still. I, I, can, you, can you give me another example? How do I know that I know that I know? Because sometimes deep in my soul, it doesn't feel like it. Sometimes it doesn't feel that God is for me. Sometimes people around us say God is not for me. Sometimes that's the story I tell myself. It seems as if people who Paul was writing to probably had the same question. And so to answer that question, Paul says, I'll tell you how you should know. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? 
This is what Paul is doing. He's going, this is a greater to lesser argument. A greater to lesser argument. And, 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 and this is what Paul is saying. God has given you everything in Jesus Christ. God has given you everything in the love of Christ. Christ did not hold back anything for you, but he gave his life for you. And if he's already done the most, you don't have to wonder if his love is real. You don't have to wonder if he will not provide for you everything else if he's already given you his very life. It's a greater to lesser argument. I heard it explained this way. Let's say one day you, you, you have a, a child and you, you ask your son or daughter, can you go next door and ask the neighbor if I can borrow his hammer? But your child says, I don't want to do that. What if the neighbor says no? How can you persuade your child that the neighbor is going to give you the hammer without a problem? Well, you go from a greater to lesser argument that looks something like this. You say to your child, well, yesterday our neighbor was happy to let us borrow his car all day long. He let us drive around Queens. I know your neighbors are not like that, but he let us drive around <laughs> Queens. And we had a good time just driving around everywhere we wanted to go, and then we returned it. And here's the greater lesser argument. If he let us drive his car, won't he let you borrow the hammer? This is what Paul is saying. If he's given you his son, the greatest thing in the world, how much more will he give you everything else? It's the greater to lesser argument that Paul is getting at, that God has given you his entire self in Christ Jesus. Jesus offers you his total commitment towards you. He is for you. I think about the words of the great theologian Fleming Rutledge. And she imagines it this way. She says, imagine a person totally committed to your best interests, devoted to seeing you flourish, fighting for you against all enemies, determined to eliminate everything destructive from your life, attentive to every detail of who you are, never thinking of himself at all, but only of you. That is Jesus in relation to us all, sacrificial in his life, sacrificial in his death. In the crucifixion, Christ demonstrates the fullness of his love for all of humanity and demonstrates the love that the Father has always had for you. And in light of all this, Paul has some more questions. They're rhetorical questions. Questions that in light of everything he said should be just readily uh, obvious. And what he does in verse 33 is he transports us. If God is for us, who can be against us? Look what God has done on our behalf. And then in a moment, he transports us. And now we find ourselves in a courtroom. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God. And is also interceding for us. Paul changes the scene. We are now in a courtroom. 
And he's saying no matter what charges come against you, no matter what condemnation is brought your way, no matter what condemnation you pour on yourself, it won't stick. Because God has already rushed to your side. Christ Jesus, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Jesus is our advocate. He intercedes for us. The image is, the Father is the judge and, and they're prosecuting forces trying to condemn us. And with every charge that comes to the Father, Jesus says, that's covered in my blood. And to say that Jesus intercedes for us means that, that God is standing with us and that our standing in Him is secure. The evil one would say, look how you messed up. And Jesus says, my blood covers that. The evil one would say, look at your addictions. And Jesus says, my blood covers that. The evil one or even our own inner voice says, look at your inconsistency. And Jesus says, my blood covers that. The evil one says, look at your bad temper. And the Lord says, my blood covers that. I feel the spirit moving now. <laughs> that our standing in him is secure. That he rushes to our side. It reminds me of one of the great stories, a great story that should be told on Father's Day. The story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. I've preached a story from this pulpit many times. And yet this past week I came across a, a wonderful angle that I had not seen before. An image that so gives us the, the beauty of God's love for us. That if God be for us, who can be against us? The story goes that a father had two sons, and the younger son asked for his portion of the inheritance. And in that culture, the only way you'll get your inheritance is if the parent died. Then you get your inheritance. When the son asks the father for his inheritance, he's basically saying, Dad, drop dead. I want my stuff. And so he says, give me my portion of the inheritance. And the father gives him his inheritance. And the son goes off to spend his money in all of the craziest places. He loses all of his money. It turns out that he has no more money and now there's a famine in the land. He doesn't have any kind of support, and so he finds himself doing something which would be regarded as ceremoniously and religiously unclean. He starts eating the food that the pigs eat. And he gets to a point where he says, I should not be doing this. My father has servants who eat way better than this. Maybe I can just go back home and say, Dad, I messed up. I don't have to live in the main house. I can live in some other house. But, but, but can you take me back in? And so the son begins to walk back home to the father. What's beautiful about Luke 15 is that the father is the first one to notice the son. 
And there's some reason behind that that's important for us. There's some Bible scholars who have highlighted a Jewish custom for a situation like this. That when a son disgraces his father through sinful behaviors and runs away and then later returns to the village, the elders of the city are to take the young man to the village center and break a pot at his feet. And the broken pot signals, you are not welcome here anymore. You are banished from this village. You are banished from this community. You are banished from life here as a family. The custom is they would break it at his feet. And so the story goes that the father is on the lookout for his son. That he's the first one to notice his son in the distance. And the Bible says that the father does something which would be culturally shameful in that moment. That dignified men in that culture just walked. But what the father does is he lifts up his garment and he begins to run after his son. Perhaps he was running after his son because he knew that the village elders were about to come and break the pot at his feet. And so he's on the lookout for his son and he reaches his son. And what does he do? He doesn't break a pot at his feet. He says, get the best robe for him. Put a ring on his finger. Get the fattened calf and let's have a party because my son who was dead is now alive. My son who was lost is now found. Let us throw a party. That's how the grace of God works. That God meets us, intercedes for us before opposing forces can get their hands on us. Now, what do we do in light of all this? If I could use a word from Paul, what shall we say to all of these things? In light of the truth that if God is for us, who can be against us? In light of the truth that if he's given us the greater thing, how much more will he give us the lesser thing? In light of all of this here, that God justifies us, how do we respond? What does it mean for our lives? And I want to offer you a few ways to respond, a few ways to live in light of this reality. In light of this good news, what difference can this make in our lives? If God is wholly committed to you, if we can sit in this truth, meditate on this truth, if we can absorb it, what can begin happening in our lives? And I want to tell you three things that can begin happening in your life. If you would begin to absorb this day in and day out, reflect on it, pray through it, journal on it. Those 10 words, if God is for us, who can be against us? What will begin to happen if that became real in your life? Three things. Here's the first thing. If you live in that truth, you will no longer be obsessed with your sins and mistakes. If this was true, and you lived as if this is true, because it is. You will no longer be obsessed with your sins and mistakes. Now, there's a healthy awareness to have about our sin and mistakes. It's important to remember that we mess up. It's important to know that we miss the mark, that we fail to be who God has created us to be. But then there's a kind of obsessiveness 
that some of us have with our sin. An obsessiveness that some of us have with our mistakes. That we find ourselves wallowing in shame because of our own inconsistencies. I know what this is like. A few years ago, I would have that dreaded annual meeting that some of you dread every single year. It's the annual evaluation at the job. And I'd come into the elders meeting and the elders are about to give me an evaluation. How did I do this past year as the lead pastor of New Life Fellowship Church? And the vast majority of the feedback was overwhelmingly positive. And then there was like this 5 to 7% of, hey, if you focused on this a little bit more, and if you worked on this a little bit more, you know, and they just gave me that, and I would walk home focusing on what? Not the 95%, but the 5%. And the stories that begin to get internalized is obsessiveness over my mistakes. I'll never be smart enough. I'll never be wise enough. I'll never be strong enough. I'll never be clear enough. And what begins to happen then is, is that my life and maybe your life gets oriented by not messing up. And this kind of way of living plays right into the hands of the evil one. When your life is marked by not making a mistake, you fall right into the hands of the evil one. This is why Thomas Merton, it's a provocative quote, and this is what he says in the 1950s or so. He says, the devil makes many disciples by preaching against sin. This is worthy of meditation for the entire week. The devil makes many disciples by preaching against sin. This is what he's saying. By becoming solely focused on abstaining from sin, we live a crushing moralism that robs us from enjoying God. When we determine the nature of our spiritual life, on what we are abstaining from, we rob ourselves from enjoyment of God. Entire cultures within the church are oriented around this, what you are abstaining from. But you can abstain from a whole lot and not give yourself to something. You can live your entire life so avoiding sin and never entering into a place where you are receiving the joy of God. But when you live in this truth, your sins and mistakes no longer have a controlling power over you. That's what will begin to happen if you absorb this text into your soul. You will no longer be obsessed with your sins and mistakes. But here's the second thing that correlates exactly with that number one point, and it is this. If you absorb this truth into your soul, you will see obedience and repentance as gifts and not a burden. If God is for us, who can be against us? If that gets into the deepest part of your psyche, the deepest part of your soul, you will begin to see obedience and repentance as gifts, not a burden. And here's the, here's the tension to hold on to. You're no longer absorbed by your sins and mistakes, but you find yourself longing to be in loving connection with God. When, when I think about the goodness of God towards me, when I think about what Christ has done for me, 
And when I actually sit with that, my soul longs to pray. My soul longs to, to obey. My soul longs to listen to God. Why? Because it's not a matter of avoiding sin anymore. It's I want my heart to be connected to God in loving union. That is the emphasis of my life. That I want obedience and repentance and I begin to see it as a gift and no longer a burden. I start repenting not because I'm afraid of God's judgment. I start repenting because I so want to be in loving relationship with God. That's the change that God wants to do in our soul. So that when we sin, we don't go, oh, I, be I better confess my sin because I'm not going to get that parking spot. Or I better confess, confess my sin or else I'm not going to get that job. Or I better confess my sin or else I'm going to end up sick here. That doesn't become the motivation anymore for repentance. Our repentance now is driven by, I long to be in relationship with God. I long to be in fellowship with God. I long to love God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And now repentance becomes a gift. Confession becomes a gift. Obedience becomes a gift. And so if you live this truth here, you will no longer be obsessed with your sins. At the same time, you will long to repent and long to obey. And here's the last thing I want to share if this becomes true in your life. You will start living more for people than against them. If this becomes true in your life, the flow, what's going to flow? You will start living more for people than against people. We live in a world where it is fashionable to build an identity on what you're against. This is the currency of cable news. This is the power behind much of social media. This is the power behind powers and principalities. And don't get me wrong, there's much to be against. There's injustice to be against. There's war to be against. There's corruption to be against. There is abuse to be against. But the problem with basing an identity on what you are against is the way that that can contaminate your soul. If your entire life is marked by the liberals, the conservatives, it's them over there. It's them over If our entire lives are built on what we are against, no wonder our souls are contaminated. No longer we live with resentment. No, longer, no, no wonder we live with violence. No wonder we live with rage deep down in our souls because to build an identity about what you are against is a recipe for disaster. But if you begin to live in this reality that if God be for you, who can be against you? You start living more for people than against people. You start living for mercy. You start living for grace. You start living for justice. You start living for compassion. You start living for the kingdom of God. If God is for you, who can be against you? I want to end by coming back to the image of the pot. And it's an important image for us. Because in our lives today, some of us are breaking pots. Some of us live our entire existence breaking pots every day. For some of us, the pots that we break is our belief that God banishes us 
And so we sin and we say, God can never forgive me. God can never do that. And we break a pot, believing that that's how God sees us. Or we break pots at our own feet. We say, we separate ourselves from God and say, I'm breaking the pot at my own feet. Or for some of us, we have broken many pots at the feet of others. I don't like the way you voted. I'm breaking a pot. I don't like the color of your skin. I'm breaking a pot. I don't like you're a Mets, you're a Yankees fan. I break the pot. That was for you, Ed. Uh, that, that, that was for I'll break the pot in the name of Jesus. Uh, we, we break the pot. You don't see the world the way I do. I break the pot at your feet. Where are you breaking pots? Are you believing that God breaks the pot at your feet? Are you breaking the pot at your own feet? Or are you breaking pots at other people's feet? But to live in this Romans 8 reality is to be reminded of those 10 beautiful words that summarize the entirety of the gospel. That if God be for us, who can be against us? And may that truth so form our lives this day. Let's pray together. Let's pray, let's pray. Lord, Lord, thank you for grace and love and mercy and compassion and truth. Lord, we thank you that those 10 words are true for all of us in Christ Jesus. If you are for us, who can be against us? May we live in that truth this day. May we be mindful of the pots that we're breaking at our feet or at the feet of others. May our lives be marked by healing, mercy, wholeness, justice, shalom, compassion. May we be the people you've called us to be. We sing to you now. It's in Jesus' name we pray and everyone said, let's all stand, let's sing as a response. You're weeping.
children and their children. May his presence go before you and behind you and beside you, all around you and within you. He is with you. He is with you in the morning, in the evening, in your coming and your going, in your weeping and rejoicing. Amen. Amen. May, may those words be somehow found all over your home this week, on your refrigerator, at your bedside, before you walk out of your house. Put a post-it note. If God is for us, who can be against us? When you mess up this week, and you will, when you make a mistake, and you will, pull that out of your wallet. If God be for us, who can be against us? When you find yourself ready to judge others and break pots at their feet, may you be reminded of the love of God shown towards you. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, may you hold on to that pot. As we close our service, for those of you watching online, I want to let you know that after the service, we have a sermon discussion time. One of our pastors will be hosting that, and if this message is spoken to your heart and you just want to have conversation with a few other new lifers, feel free to click on that link and have a conversation for about 30 minutes or so. In addition to that, for those of you watching online or in this room here, the promise is that Paul offers for us in Romans 8 are for those in Christ Jesus, for those who have attached their lives to him. And I wonder today if you have said yes to Christ, if you've opened your heart to his love, if you have said, forgive me of my sins, I want to follow you and do what our sister Emma did just a few moments ago. Be baptized as a way of saying, my loyalty belongs to Jesus. And if you've never done something like that, but you're sensing something stirring in your soul, let us serve you. You can text the phrase, yes to Jesus, to that number on the screen. And one of our pastors would love to follow up with you and help you take your next steps. And so don't ignore that feeling. It's like, well, something's tugging me. I don't know what it is. It's, it's the grace of God, the love of God moving towards you, calling you into relationship with Jesus Christ. So feel free to text yes to Jesus to that number on the screen. As we close our service, at the end here, I'm going to be outside in the porch area and the patio. I'd love to uh, greet you all. And uh, for those of you who are new to our congregation, if, you, if you're first or second time here or you've never, uh, we've never met, 
please approach me. I'd love to get your name. I'd love to get to know a little bit about you. So I'll be outside. Feel free to introduce yourself. And feel free to hang out at the patio on the porch and connect with others. You know, uh, we, we went 15 months or so without connecting with people at all. Uh, let's take an opportunity to get to know some people today as we are brothers and sisters in the house of God. Amen. Let me invite you to open your hands towards heaven to receive a blessing. If God be for you, who can be against you? No one. Brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and fill you with peace. And may you walk out of this building and out of this online gathering in the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that if God is for you, nothing can be against you. May you live in that truth this week. And may that truth fill you with peace, joy, love, and hope. I bless you all in the strong, in the beautiful, in the resurrected name of Jesus Christ. And everyone said. Grace and peace to you all.